right, everyone. Good morning. Great to see you all. Thank you, worship team. That was fantastic, as always. Really, really enjoyed it this morning. Thank you, Troy. Thank you, Ethan, for keeping it all looking good up there. Appreciate that very much. Well, uh, today we're continuing our study in uh, the Reformation. This is week three of week four. We're going to finish it next week. And uh, hard to do, uh, what, two, two, three hundred years of justice in two hours, but uh, we're doing the best we can, two total hours of, of preaching time. But uh, this week we're going to see that the Reformation uh, spreads over the land. And our scripture is going to be from 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And it says... In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. All right, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you uh, for this Thanksgiving season, which is upon us now. And Lord, we're so grateful for your many, many gifts uh, and Lord, we're also thankful for the Reformation because it gave us so much, uh, recovering the gospel that had been lost for a thousand years. And Lord, as we study it, help us to apply what we're learning, uh, help us to understand our need for Reformation today and what it's going to take for us to be a light to the world so that uh, we can have Reformation and revival in our times. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever been to one of those uh, Christmas Eve candlelight services where you have a candle and you, you take the flame from the person next to you and you light your candle and, until the entire church is lit? Uh, it's a beautiful sight to see, and, and uh, the church looks so beautiful, and that's what was happening during the time of the Reformation. Uh, Luther was the candle that was lit, and then other countries and other re reformers started to have their own candles lit, and they took the Reformation all across Europe, uh, starting in Switzerland after Germany. So we're going to talk about today the Reformation in Switzerland uh, and the Anabaptists, and we'll talk about John Calvin as well. Uh, but this is Ulrich Zwingli. He was born about seven weeks after Martin Luther in this little house, uh, which is still standing, in Wild House, Switzerland. That's Zwingli's birth home. Uh, and so it's still there, just that little shack. Uh, and he was a priest and a scholar. Uh, and he had learned Greek as a young man, and he had learned Greek by reading Erasmus's uh, translation of the New Testament into Greek. So not only was he a priest, but he was a scholar, a biblical scholar, and a Greek scholar. Uh, and in 1519, the Zurich City Council hired Zwingli to become the priest uh, of this church called Grossmünster, which is on the Limat River in Switzerland. And it was quite a prestigious position, and that church is still there uh, as well. Well, Zwingli had independently reached the same kind of conclusions that Martin Luther had, that the church was in need of reform. And he had some ideas about he, how he was going to reform the church as well. And on June 1st, 1519, uh, Zwingli gets up in front of his congregation and he says, I am no longer going to preach from this Catholic lectionary that we've preached from for a thousand years. I am going to preach from the New Testament, starting with the book of Matthew. And their jaws all dropped to the floor and they said, who's Matthew? <laughs> they had no idea because the gospel had not been preached for a thousand years uh, and they had had the mass said in Latin, which they didn't understand. And so this was a completely new thing uh, that, that Zwingli was going to do. Uh, and so uh, that was his, his plan. 
Uh, in terms of his uh, relationship to the papacy, he rejected papal authority. Uh, he, he advanced only the two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, not the seven sacraments that the Catholic Church advanced themselves. Uh, he taught against the sale of indulgences, of course, and he wanted other kinds of reforms in the church. And as you can imagine, when you start preaching like this publicly, you're going to have Catholic opposition beginning to mount against you. And so that's what started to happen. And so Zwingli was not afraid of debate. Uh, he was not afraid of his reforms. What he did was he wrote up 67 uh, charges or complaints against the Catholic Church, and then he invited debate on these uh, reforms that he was coming up with. And so uh, there were three separate debates, and, and at the first one, they accused Zwingli of preaching a new doctrine. And he laughs at them, and he says, uh, a new doctrine? This is 1,500 years old. Folks, read your Bibles. If you read your Bibles, you'll see that there's nothing new here. This is, this is what we're supposed to be preaching. And so uh, at the first debate, the Zurich City Council uh, Zurich clearly, I mean, Zwingli clearly won the debate, and they, they said to him, you just keep on preaching. You are doing the right thing. And, and those 67 points became the first confession of this new reformed church that was being born. Well, at a second debate in October of 1523, Zwingli goes after the Mass. He says the Mass is blasphemous, and it's a work of the Antichrist because uh, Christ's a body is the, the sacrifice was only a memorial. What we're doing at the table is a memorial. The bread and the wine do not become the body of Christ itself. So he rejected transubstantiation, which was not only a break with the Catholic Church, but it was a break with Luther as well. Because remember, Luther thought that the sacrament was that, that Christ was specially present in the sacrament uh, in a way that he's not present at other times. And so you have. Now you have a splinter group reformed, uh, different than the Catholics and also different than Luther. So when we think of the Reformation, I think oftentimes we think that it was this, you know, one united front against the old Catholic Church, but it wasn't like that. There were splinter groups with different theologies about different things. Well, by the time of the third debate in 1525, uh, the images had been removed from the church, uh, and people could eat meat during Lent, and priests could even get married. And Zwingli himself, uh, he got married. And the church in Zurich voted to become a reformed church. And so that was a complete break uh, with the Catholic Church. And on Easter Sunday, 1525, uh, he, he rejected the Latin Mass, and he preached a simple communion service, which had not been done uh, for a thousand years, uh, getting rid of the, of the Catholic Mass. Well, while these debates were going on, uh, Zwingli had a group of followers, uh, and they were really into what he was doing. And they were like, yeah, go Zwingli, go Zwingli. We, we love this reform that you're doing. Uh, but then, you know, Zwingli had a little bit of red tape because he was dealing with the Zurich City Council, and he could only move this reformation so fast and so far. But he had a group of followers uh, who thought it wasn't going fast enough or far enough. And, and these were led by this guy, a man by the name of Conrad Grable. And they were frustrated because just a couple years earlier, before the, the Mass on, on, in 1525 on, on Easter Sunday, these images still appeared in the church and the Mass was still being said. Uh, and, and images and relics still appeared in the church. And, and these guys were like, let's, let's get it going. Let's get it moving a little faster. Uh, and so what happened was that Grable and his friends, they thought that Zwingli was too uh, in with the, with the Zurich City Council and wasn't, uh, wasn't willing to break from the Zurich City Council. Uh, he thought that, that, that uh, Zwingli had become a hostage. And so 
Uh, not only that, but they wanted to replace infant baptism with adult baptism, and that was a really big deal uh, at the time. And not only that, but they wanted separation of the church from the state, which also was a really big deal at the time. That did not happen. The, the church and the, and the state were one thing at that time. And so Grable and his followers became known as the Anabaptists. Uh, the prefix Anna in Greek means again. So this means baptize again. And, and this was kind of a derogative term uh, that people used about this group because they were preaching adult baptism. Uh, so being baptized a second time. But infant baptism had been practiced for a thousand years, uh, nonstop in the church, and, and not even Zwingli or Luther broke from uh, infant baptism. And the reason why infant baptism was a big deal was because when you're baptized as a baby, you become baptized into the church and into the state, and so it creates political and religious unity. There are no factions, there are no splinter groups. And so that's what the state wanted, and that's what the church wanted. Uh, but these Anabaptists, Grable and his friends, they read their Bible, they didn't see anything about infant baptism anywhere in the Bible, and they didn't see this entanglement between church and state that, that they saw in, the, in Zurich. And so these guys got together and they started holding their own private Bible classes, which was illegal and which was dangerous. Uh, the Zurich City Council got wind of what was going on and they ordered these guys to stop meeting together. And when they heard about their theology about rebapt or baptizing uh, as adults, rebaptizing, they said, no, we're not doing that. We're not doing adult baptism. Every infant has to be baptized within eight days of birth or the family was subject to banishment from the city of Zurich. And so what happened was that Grable and his friends, uh, in defiance of the church, the state and Zwingli himself, who would not go along with this, uh, these guys started gathering together and they started baptizing each other as adults. And that was a really, really big deal and, and probably doesn't seem like much of a big deal to us, but it was a subversive act uh, for the time. Well, these Anabaptists thought, you know, we cannot confuse the church with the rest of society because they read their New Testaments and, and who did they see was the church? In the New Testament, the church is a committed group of Christ followers, people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as their savior, and then there's everyone else, right? There's, there's the, the church, small, and the rest of the people, big. And, and Zwingli's followers, these Anabaptists, saw that, and they said, look, uh, when you baptize infants, you're making them part of the church uh, by their baptism as infants, and they're not making the personal decision that's required to accept Jesus as their savior, which is at the heart of Christianity. And, and so uh, that was radical because what they were talking about was creating, everybody, everybody understood that if you did this, if you started baptizing as adults and not as infants, you were going to have believers and non-believers. You're going to have people in the state who were not baptized believers, and that was going to create a separation of church and state. And people knew that, and that, that was going to mess up political unity. Uh, and so these guys were seen as revolutionaries, uh, even by Zwingli himself. And so you had that problem with these Anabaptists. But second of all, these Anabaptists were peaceful. They were not going to take up arms to fight. And it was necessary to fight at this time because Catholic opposition to what they were doing was great as well. And so there were gonna be times when it's time to take up arms and since they wouldn't do it, uh, they were considered subversive for that reason. Well, in 1526, the city council says, look, uh, you guys are, you're trouble and you're subversives and we uh, outlaw you and we condemn you to death. And so they arrested Grable and they threw him in jail and before he could be executed, he got the plague and he died. 
But another one of his followers, uh, Felix Manns, uh, they took him out to the Limit River and they weighed him down with stones and they tossed him in the river and he sank to the bottom and drowned. And Zwingli himself approved it. He said, if it's the water that they want, it's the water that they shall have. And underneath they went. And so uh, these are our reformers. These are our forefathers. You know, so with this, this, this series that we're doing, we can, it can be seen as uh, you know, we're, we're taking the ta Catholics to task a little bit, but it's the Protestants too. Uh, they, they all uh, had flaws in what they were thinking and in how they were treating each other. Um, so they were, they were pacifists, like I said, and, and they would not fight back. And, and so when they were arrested, they were like Christ. They went like a lamb to the slaughter and they did not open their mouths and they went uh, and allowed themselves to be executed for their beliefs. But there was this one radical group of Anabaptists. Uh, they were to the north uh, in, in uh, Germany, in a place called Munster, Germany, well to the northwest of what was happening in Switzerland. And they took over uh, this town of Munster. They, they went into the town and they, they expelled all the Catholics and they started tearing down the images and relics from the church and everything else. And, and they had this little uh, commune uh, in the church in the middle of Munster. Well, the Catholic Church regrouped and they circled the city and they laid it under siege. And there was this one guy who was the leader of their movement whose name was John of Leiden, this guy. And so he was the leader of the group. And so he sets himself up in opulence in the city while because of the siege, people were starving in the city. Uh, so he's, he's living this life while everybody else is living a, a very difficult life. Uh, not only that, but he gets uh, the power because he's the head. Uh, he's living in opulence, and he decides that he's going to start practicing Old Testament polygamy. So he starts to gather up people's wives. And so he's got money, he's got power, and he's got other people's wives. And so generally, when you see those three, three things together, you have a cult on your hands, right? Uh, and that's what this was. This was a cult on their hands. And so eventually what happened was that the Catholic uh, opposition was able to regroup uh, they storm the city, they take the city back over again, and they capture Leiden uh, and a couple of these associates. And what they did was they tortured them to death, uh, and they, they tortured them really badly. I'm not going to give you the details. You can look it up on Wikipedia if you care to. Uh, but it was pretty nasty. And, they, and then they hung their bodies in this church steeple at St. Lambert's Church in Munster, Germany, which is still there. If you go there, you can still see these cages hanging from the church steeple up there. Uh, and they left their bodies in those cages for 50 years <laughs> until there was nothing left but bones. And then they took the bones down, and I don't know where the bones are now, but uh, it's a symbol of what happens when uh, reform goes too far, when reform becomes radicalism, right? This is a different thing uh, where these guys are taking up uh, themselves by violence. And so, unfortunately for the moderate Baptists, the peaceful Anabaptists, they got lumped together with these radical Anabaptists. And if you're called an Anabaptist, then you're trouble. And so the, these guys got persecuted all over the place. And, and so what happened was that uh, this guy, a guy by the name of Menno Simons, uh, took a, a group of peaceful Anabaptists and, and they fled for Holland. And so this group of Anabaptists became known as the Mennonites from the name Menno Simons. And, and he preached uh, a, a, a style of simplicity, right? A simple New Testament life of simplicity, uh, poverty, uh, and uh, so just regular uh, simple living, uh, gentleness and simplicity. And, 
And uh, if you've ever seen or heard of the Amish, the Amish developed out of the Mennonites, and they can be found in the Pennsylvania Dutch uh, country. Even today, you can drive around there and you can see them in their horse-drawn carriages. They, they uh, reject technology and electricity and gas-powered things, but uh, they will compete to see who has the best buggy, I'm told. So uh, <laughs> you, you can take the electricity out, but you can't take a man out of it. He's still going to compete to see who's got the best stuff. Uh, and so that's what happened. Well, uh, as for Zwingli, uh, what, oh, I'm sorry, uh, the, uh, there was a man named Philip Hess, uh, and Philip of Hess, he understood uh, that there were two separate reformations going on. This is Philip of Hess. He understood that there was a reformation happening in Germany and a separate reforma reformation happening in Switzerland. And so he thought, if we can get these two guys together, uh, agree on theology and strategy, we can have a really unified front going forward and we can really push this thing uh, hard. And so he got Zwingli and Luther to get together and they had a meeting uh, and it was at a place called Marburg. And this is called the Marburg Colloquy. You can see... Uh, a painting of, of Luther and Zwingli uh, arguing with each other because they could agree on 14 out of 15 points of theology, but on the Lord's Supper, they could not agree. Uh, Zwingli said, it's just a memorial sacrifice. He was using symbolic language when he said, this is my body. And Luther said, if Jesus said, this is my body, he meant, this is my body, and I'm taking it literally, and you are more in error than even the Pope. Uh, and so that's a very strong statement when you think about what we learned about Luther and his feelings about the Pope last week. Uh, so this was not a minor divide between Luther and Zwingli. This was huge. This was a massive chasm. Uh, and so they were not able to agree on uh, theology going forward. And so the Reformed and the Lutheran movements had to continue uh, separately, even though they would both uh, continue. And even today, uh, the major difference between Lutherans and, and many of the other uh, denominations of Protestantism is the meaning of the Lord's Supper, and, and so that's, that's something that uh, they still have not been able to recognize. Well, as for Zwingli himself, some cantons followed him into Protestantism and some didn't. A canton is like a U.S. state. There were 13 of them in Switzerland, and some became Protestant and others became Catholic. And the Zurich canton had imposed economic sanctions on the Catholic cantons of Switzerland. Uh, and they didn't like that. And so they marched on Zurich and they caught Zwingli completely by surprise. And so these Catholics, they come with an army of 8,000. Zwingli is able to scare up about 1,500 guys uh, to go out and defense. Uh, Luther, I mean, I'm sorry, Zwingli is a pacifist, but he goes out because he knows he's got to fight. And he's captured. And uh, what happened then was that, uh, they, they, this is a painting of what happened, they, they, they captured him, they realized who he was, that he was the leader of this movement, and so they killed him, uh, they quartered his body, and they burnt it, and they scattered his ashes to the wind, which is what happens when you're deemed to be a radical, and so that's what he was deemed to be. But uh, even though his movement, uh, he, even though he died, his movement did not die. And it was continued uh, in Zurich by this guy, Heinrich Bullinger, who after Zwingli died, he led for about 50 years. And he was able uh, to work with Calvin, who uh, followed uh, and, and reach agreement on several things that allowed the Reformed and Calvinist movements to kind of get together, uh, be galvanized, and move forward uh, together. And so speaking of Calvin... Uh, this is John Calvin, and he is a, a second-generation reformer. Calvin's about 25 years younger than Zwingli and Luther, uh, and, and Reformation had been on the scene already by the time Calvin uh, reached the situation, but, but he, he knew what was going on, and, and he agreed with it. 
Uh, he was a lawyer and he was a scholar, so half good and half bad. Uh, and he learned his New Testament and he learned his Old Testament. He studied Greek, he studied Hebrew, uh, and he was a really bright guy. But in 1535, when he was just coming into his own, uh, there was a big persecution of Protestants going on in France where he lived. Francis I was, was persecuting uh, these Protestants. And so Calvin flees for nearby uh, Geneva in Switzerland. And uh, he wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion there, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with, a massive volume foundational to uh, Protestant theology, uh, 27 years old when he wrote that book. Uh, incredible, right? Uh, when I was 27, I was definitely not writing the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And uh, uh, I don't know what you guys were doing, but Calvin was an impressive uh, guy at 27 years old, and he became famous overnight. Well, uh, in nearby Geneva, this guy, William Farrell, was leading the Protestant Reformation there. Uh, and uh, what, uh, this is what Switzerland looked like. You had, uh, on, the, on this southeast side, you have Geneva, and Zurich is all the way on the other end, and so this, this Reformation is going on, and they're going to meet in the middle, kind of. Um, Switzerland itself is only as big as uh, Vermont and New Hampshire combined. I don't know if you all have heard of Vermont and New Hampshire here from Texas, but it's a couple of little states up there in the Northeast that are uh, just not very big. But, you know, when you don't have a car, you don't have trains, it, it's still a pretty big area. And so this Reformation is developing and growing uh, kind of large. Well, Farrell heard that Calvin was in Switzerland, and, he, and, he, and, and Calvin is famous, so he runs up to him and says, we need your help here uh, with what we're doing. And Calvin says, no, no thanks. Uh, I'm not into revolution. I'm into reading and writing and, and staying by myself by candlelight. And Farrell says, uh, if you don't help us, may God curse your studies and everything you're doing because uh, you didn't help us in our hour of need. And, and Calvin was you know, taken aback, scared, and he says, all right, all right, I'll help. Uh, and so he stays there, and he helps, and he's... He, he, he just wants to help the leaders, but he's so gifted that he actually becomes the leader of this movement. And so he and Farrell wrote up this confession uh, that you had to agree to if you wanted to stay in Geneva. You had to affirm this, uh, which was a very reformed type of theological statement. But uh, the, the council, the city council in Geneva got word of what he was doing. And they said, uh, you guys are trying to take over and we're going to banish you guys. And so they banished them. And they went to nearby Strasbourg on the border of France for a period of about three years. Well, Calvin couldn't hide. In Strasbourg, there was this guy by the name of Martin Butzer, uh, and he was the leader of the Reformation movement in Strasbourg. And he said, Calvin, you are going to be the pastor of my church in Strasbourg. And Calvin said, no. And Butzer says, you will be. And Calvin said, okay. <laughs> he, he didn't have enough willpower to, to, to take on these, these guys with huge personalities who wanted to do uh, these, the Reformation. And so uh, Calvin meekly acquiesced. Uh, so he did that for three years, and he was actually very happy doing that. But back in Geneva, things had changed. There was a new government that came on, and, and they were into what Calvin was trying to do. And so they asked him to come back. And so in 1541, he comes back and he starts these reforms that he wasn't able to do three years ago, like he established an elder-led church, which was different than any city-led church, which had been uh, for the past thousands of years. So you have a separation of church and state. He also followed the New Testament model. He had elders, and he had deacons, and he had teachers, and he had pastors, uh, which was also something that was from the New Testament, which didn't exist in the church as it was. Well, John Knox of Scotland heard about Calvin, and he came down from Scotland, and he saw what Calvin was doing, and he said, 
This is the most perfect church that has ever been since the time of the New Testament apostles. And so he takes what Calvin had taught him back to Scotland, and he starts the Reformation in Scotland. Uh, and, and that's where, how Scotland became a Reformed uh, city, and that's how John Knox got his start. So you can see that this Reformation is just spreading uh, all over Europe. Well, as for Calvin, uh, he lived another 20 plus years. Uh, he continued his reforms in Geneva. Uh, he continued to revise the institutes of the Christian religion. He wrote commentaries on nearly every book of the Bible. Uh, and he was obviously uh, had a huge impact on Christian thought and, and uh, the Protestant Reformation. And he died in 1564. Well, we all know that Calvin is a very polarizing figure, right? When, when, you, when you hear Calvin, you probably think Calvinism, and you, you go one way or another on that one, depending on what you think. Uh, but not only is theology, but, but it's hard to be the leader. There was this guy, Michael Servetus. Uh, Michael Servetus was a, a scholar. He was a medical doctor, actually. And he denied the Trinity. And he was condemned to execution in France because you condemn and execute heretics. And so uh, he escaped his execution in France. He fled to Geneva, but he was quickly recognized, captured, and they were deciding what to do with him. And Calvin tried to talk him out of this uh, heretical uh, thought that he had, but he would not be moved. And so uh, Calvin wanted to have him beheaded because he thought that was more humane, but the rest of the city decided to burn him at the stake. And so that's what they did. And so uh, just like Zwingli bears the stigma for Felix Manns and, and some of the others that lost their lives, Calvin bears some stigma for what happened uh, to Michael Servetus, even though it was commonplace to kill heretics in that day. That's what you did. But positively, Calvinists were able to put aside some of the theological differences with other uh, threads and strands of this uh, Reformation that was going on, and, and they were able to unite, and they were able to uh, uh, become more uh, united and, and be able to, to put on a, a better front. And so they agreed that, that the, uh, the Eucharist is, is uh, Jesus' spiritual presence in the sacrament uh, rather than transubstantiation. And that was enough to say to unify these various strands of Protestantism so they could continue on one movement. So you had these reformed people who all agreed together, and then you had the Lutherans who were continuing separately. You also know that Calvin is, is, is often credited with developing what is called the five points of Calvinism, right? That we, what we know of as tulip uh, today, but, but that's not quite true. What actually happened was that uh, Jacob Arminius, this guy, was a student of Calvin, and he ended up uh, debating against somebody who disagreed with Calvin. And so Arminius was looking into uh, his opponent's point of view and Calvin's and, and actually came to agree with his opponent's point of view that Calvinism was a little too rigid. Uh, in Calvinism, there's a big emphasis on the sovereignty of God. And when you have that, you have predestination and you have election. And so Calvin taught that God decides beforehand, he predestines who is going to be among the elect, and then he regenerates the hearts of the elect so that they can believe. Uh, and, and that takes complete control out of the creature. Um, and so he taught that we have absolute inability to believe without God's regenerating power. And having no emphasis on, on what man does in that situation, Arminius thought that that was a little too rigid. He says, how can we be sent to hell when it is not even possible that we not believe? He thought that that was unfair, and so that was his big gripe with it. 
Well, he didn't get a chance to develop his theology as, as, as much as he would like to. He died in 1609, but his followers, uh, who became known as the Arminians, developed what are called the Five Remonstrances. And a, five, and a remonstrance is simply a, a point of protest, so a fancy word just to say a protest. But what they taught was that man has ability, even though we're corrupt, uh, God has given us some ability to believe on our own. And they taught that God foreknew who would choose him, and then God chooses them. So you have man making the choice first. Uh, I, God knows that I am going to choose him, and so he chooses me. And so you have a big emphasis on, on man's uh, part in the process of salvation rather than, than God's. They also taught unlimited atonement, that Christ died for all, uh, and, and that was different than Calvin because Calvin, uh, Calvin's followers ended up saying that Christ only died for the elect, and that's the big point of contention uh, even today. Uh, finally, uh, these, these Arminians taught that, that you could resist God's grace. Even if you were among God's elect, you could choose not to be elect and therefore not to be saved. And hand in hand with that, once you are saved, you can lose your salvation because you can ultimately reject your salvation. Well, these five remonstrances came before a council called the Synod of Dort in Holland in 1618 and 1619. And they considered all these things and they said, no, you guys are off base. You're missing God's sovereignty here. And they're the guys who came up with what is today known as TULIP. And when you talk about TULIP, we're talking about total depravity of man. There is nothing in man uh, that can uh, allow him to choose without God's regenerating us. We are totally and absolutely corrupt and lost. And so we need uh, his unconditional election. And we get that because God has chosen us by his mercy beforehand that we might be saved. And it is he who regenerates us. We're not saved due to anything in ourselves, but only because of God's mercy. Uh, third, limited atonement. That means Christ only died for the elect. So if you are not among the elect, he did not die for you. Uh, he only died for those who are elect. And that is a big point of contention even today. It's very hard to go evangelize somebody and say to somebody, uh, you, God wants you to be saved, maybe. Uh, if you're among the elect, we're not quite sure. So that's, that's a hard thing to do. And, and so that's a big point of contention. Uh, irresistible grace means that if God elects you, you will ultimately have no say in the matter. You will be saved. And finally, preservation of the saints means that if you have been saved, God preserves you. You cannot lose your salvation. And so you see that the emphasis is on God's power to save and not man's power to choose. Uh, and this comes from Jesus who said, no one can snatch them out of my hand, right? Uh, once you're saved, you're always saved. Well, TULIP becomes the hallmark of, of Orthodox Calvinism, but even today, scholars debate whether Calvin himself actually held to limited atonement. Uh, some say that that was developed by his followers and not by Calvin himself. Uh, at Dallas Seminary, they teach, they, they would call themselves four-point Calvinists. They would agree with, uh, with uh, T and U and I and P, uh, but the L, they would say, no, that's not right. Christ died for all, and you have to appropriate uh, your salvation by faith and belief, and that's how you're saved. Uh, Christ died for all, but only those who receive him are saved. Well, by the end to the middle of the uh, 16th century, uh, the Protestant Reformation was starting to thrive across Europe. Uh, those light yellow areas are the Catholic areas, but you can see these, these uh, reformed areas starting to spring up all over. 
Uh, in Germany, you had uh, Lutherans and Calvins, Calvinists existing together. Uh, Poland, Austria, and Hungary also had reformations ongoing. Uh, France was still predominantly Catholic, but the Edict of Nantes in 1598 uh, gave them freedom to practice their religion uh, without persecution. In Switzerland, you had Catholics uh, and you had Protestants existing together. Uh, Anabaptists were in Switzerland and some of them fled to Holland. And you had Arminians who were doing well in Holland as well. Uh, Italy and Spain remained Catholic. And of course, there is the story of the English Reformation, which we're going to get to next week. So if you're into political intrigue and beheadings of queens and all kinds of cool and nasty stuff like that, uh, we'll be talking about that uh, next week as the Reformation spreads into England and into the New World. But for now, what can we learn about uh, Zwingli and the Anabaptists and Calvin? Uh, one thing is that we need to know our Bibles, right? Once you see these groups starting to splinter off, uh, you're going to have disagreements and you're even going to have some strange and wacky ideas and you're even going to have some cults develop out of people who at one time were well-meaning. You know there are 35,000 denominations of Protestants now? That seemed hard to believe. Could there possibly be 35,000 things to disagree about? Uh, and yet, you know, we're sinful, fallen creatures and we find a way to disagree. Uh, it's in our nature to do so. So evangelicals differ not only with Catholic theology, but we differ with a lot of different Protestant theology as well. And so uh, we have to know that if we're going to defend our faith, uh, especially as we think about moving into a new building with new people who we don't know, into a new neighborhood, we have to know our faith, we have to know our Bible, so that when we come across some teaching that is not correct, we're able to spot it and we're able to say, no, it's, it's not quite like that, it's like this, and this is what the Bible says about that. Because of false teaching, the church lost the gospel for a thousand years. It was lost, buried under tradition and false teaching, and so we cannot let that happen again. We have to make it our goal to know the word so well that when we uh, see false teaching, we're able to spot it and correct it. So we have to be very strong on our theology. But the second thing is that we have to be very careful about the things that we are willing to divide over, right? 35,000 denominations of Protestantism means we're probably dividing over some things that are not that big of a deal, right? Uh, there has been a movement uh, since Vatican II in the 60s, uh, an ecumenical movement to try and get Catholics and Protestants to, to agree on things and uh, so that we can have a better relationship than we've had for the past thousand years. And, and I'm all for unity among Christians, and I think that's a wonderful thing. And, and, and where we can agree, we ought to agree. We shouldn't divide over things like uh, chairs versus pews or, or drums versus organ. Things like this are things that we ought not to divide over. And there are social issues that we can certainly agree on. You know, we, we all agree that it's important to feed the poor. And uh, we're against uh, homosexual marriage, and, and we're against things like that. We can agree on these things and unite uh, on things like this. But, but there are times where the gospel itself is at stake, and, and at times like this, we cannot reconcile. We have to hold firm to what we believe. And that's, that goes for even other Protestants. Unitarians uh, deny the, the Trinity. Universalists say everyone is saved. So if that's true, then why did Jesus have to die? Uh, cults deny Jesus' divinity. So how are we going to reconcile with them? Uh, Catholics uh, today even, they, they still uh, teach the contribution of sacraments to your own salvation. And they teach uh, that Mary uh, is still, uh, uh, she was a perpetual virgin and her immaculate conception 
uh, which denies the doctrine that all men have sinned. Uh, they still believe that, he, that she was assumed up to heaven and that she actually shares responsibility for our salvation with Jesus. And so uh, when you have all these different things going on, there, there is a place for harmony, but there's also a place where we have to take a stand and say, that's not right and we cannot reconcile uh, on these points. And so the same catechism in the, the 1994 catechism of the Catholic Church still teaches uh, that Jesus is sacrificed on the altar every Sunday uh, which means that he did not die once and for all for our sins. And they're still preaching indulgences for the dead. And so any theology that, that uh, denies uh, Jesus' deity or teaches that we can contribute anything to our own salvation or diminishes Jesus' once and for all sacrifice on the cross, uh, we just don't have uh, any, any place to agree with them on those points. So again, let's know our doctrine, let's know what we have to divide over, and let's know what we don't have to divide over so we can have peace in some areas, but yet hold uh, to, to uh, the things that, that we don't have to hold to with, with the tightest of this, we can let some of that go. So uh, in Europe, the Bible was being read. And so that's why I chose that scripture passage, preach the Bible. The Bible was being read, the Bible was being preached, and people were being saved. And so we praise the Lord for that. Uh, and I don't want to divide over matters that are simply matters of preference. I want to be sure that we're dividing over things that are important, doctrine that leads to salvation. When we have to divide, let's make it sure that, that that's what we're dividing over. All right, so next week we'll talk about the English Reformation. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do thank you so much for what we have learned and what we're continuing to learn about the Reformation and what it teaches us. Lord, it's so important to defend the gospel at all costs. We have to fight for the gospel and not give an inch when it comes to what the gospel actually is. Uh, and yet, Lord, there are things that divide us that are, are matters of preference, uh, that are matters of people's egos getting in the way, and pride is always a big problem. Lord, help us to understand where it is that we need to hold fast to what you teach and, and Lord, on the other hand, help us to know what is simply a matter of preference, what is not a salvation issue. And Lord, that we may uh, just go forth trying to preach the gospel uh, in its purest form. And Lord, may we try and save people as we do so, Lord. And may it be by your grace, uh, may you use us as our instruments, even though we are weak and sinful. Lord, we're thankful for what you are doing in our lives and in the lives of the, of the people of this church. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And I just want to give you all uh, my, my sincerest happy Thanksgivings uh, wishes and uh, just hoping you have a great and blessed day. May you enjoy your time with family and uh, look forward to seeing you again next Sunday. All right.